Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Recoil Live. I'm your host, Tom Marshall, and I am very excited this week to have with me a very special guest, Rick Prado. Now, Rick is a retired intelligence officer and spent uh, how many years in the CIA, Rick? Just uh, 24 and a half. Just 24 and a half, of course, yeah. So uh, let's, let's away we go, right? So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, and before we get to, to the professional part, um, you know, tell us where you grew up and uh, how, how, you, uh, how you came into the U.S. Well, I'm, I'm actually, I was born in Cuba. Um, so I witnessed the, uh, the revolution, um, Castro's revolution. I saw communism take over, um, confiscate my dad's property, you know, my, my dad's business. Um, the, the big swing into total control of communism. So I think that all those things were kind of uh, God's way of preparing me for the path that he had in mind for me to take. Um, Cause it was, it was pretty rough. I mean, I saw some pretty strong firefights at the age of seven or eight. Um, I traveled to the United States by myself because my parents could not get out. So I came out through a program called Pedro Pan, Peter Pan, and I ended up in an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. Uh, that was another learning experience when you have you know, a bunch of angry, uh, what is it, uh, orphans and, and uh, different cultures and different languages and different races. So it was, um, you, you learned to, to make friends and take care of yourself really quickly, so. I would imagine that the uh, climate change was pretty substantial for you as well, going, going from Cuba to uh, Colorado. Yeah. Well, Pueblo is not in the, in the higher parts of it. It's not like Denver, but, um, and it was, I was there from uh, early April to October. So I didn't get any of the radical, but yeah, the, the, the summer months are completely different than what they are or what I was used to from the Island. Yeah. So from there, uh, give us a rough overview of your, your military career. I know that, that you did spend some time in the military and then transitioned to the agency from that. So uh, let's talk a little bit through that. What jobs did you hold? What major stations did you get a chance to work at? Uh, take us, take us uh, you know, through your career. Give us the highlight reel. Yeah. Well, you know, I uh, ended up in Miami with my parents, actually Hialeah and Miami Springs. Uh, and uh, I, I think once I re uh, graduated from, from high school, I, I grew a conscience. That's when I think I realized that I had a debt of honor to this country that you know, hadn't been satisfied. I hadn't done anything um, other than not getting in trouble. So um, I bumped into a pararescueman who was in, in, in college with me. Uh, we were taking an oceanography class together. I didn't know at the time the difference between Army, Navy, or Air Force. And he showed me the photographs and told me the, the training and the purpose, again, which is purpose-driven life, I hope, um, that, that I went into pararescue. Um, I thought I was uh, fit and I thought I was a pretty tough kid until I got to pararescue. They uh, humbled me with that for a while, but um, I made it through. And my goal was to go to Vietnam. I really wanted to go to Vietnam, but by the time I went into the Air Force, it was late 71. By the time I got my hat and all the post-training, um, it was 73, and as you know, the war was pretty much wound down. 
So in 74, I stayed in the active reserves. And that's the first time that I, I applied to the agency. I wrote them a handwritten letter saying, hey, I know about Air America. You know, I speak a couple of languages. This is my background, have done well travel, that kind of crap. And they came back with a real nice note saying, uh, we're firing, not hiring, which, which was the truth. Those were really brutal years for, for the government. And then um, I had moved off to the 20th Special Forces up in Fort Lauderdale. And around 1979, I reapplied to the agency. And this time, because, also because I was, I've been riding rescue, that was what I was doing, riding rescue in Miami. I was a rescue paramedic. Um, they, they said, you know, we could use somebody like you that's got the paramilitary background, but it's got the medical skills to work with our special activities divisions ground branch, which is, you know, it's our special forces, um, special operations forces. And uh, so I did that part-time for, for a few months. Um, I was disillusioned because again, they were still not really hiring. And then Reagan comes in and declares war on our backyard communism. Uh, and the, um, when he created the Contra program for freedom fighters against the Sandinista communist regime, um, the agency did not have a native Spanish speaking, Hispanic looking guy who had paramilitary skills. And they, they who was that Cuban guy? Remember the PJ? They looked me up and, and uh, they called me on a Thursday and Monday I was at headquarters getting physicals and polygraphed. And a week later I was in Honduras. And I did, uh, I did three, a little over three years uh, living there in, in, in the border, uh, Monday through Friday in a jungle hammock and best job I ever had. So, you know, you, you mentioned the Contra program. I would argue that that is in particular a program that is widely misunderstood. And I think particularly, I mean, now for, I think most people in an age of social media, we're, we're talking about ancient history, uh, talking about Iran Contra, we might as well be telling Bible stories at this point. But for the people who either do remember the, the news media side of it or who aren't familiar, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that program, on what the stated goals were versus what the end portrayal was on screen. Uh, and and kind of maybe what got lost in translation from what you guys were actually doing in the field versus the sort of dirty politics that wound up uh, really being intertwined with it at the end. That's an excellent question. Thank you, because that is one of my pet peeves. You know, the that program was very controversial because it was political, like everything else. You know, we try to do operations through political optics, and that doesn't work. We, we learned that the hard way. Um, when uh, the program was covert action, that's why the book is called Black Ops. Um, it, it's, that's what we do. We collect intelligence and we do Black Ops, which is the covert action. President signs on something and it's, it's legal in the 50 states. You know, uh, overseas, you're on your own, but you know, you're, you're covered back here. So um, that program was very maligned by the media um, because the Sandinistas were part of that Cuban revolutionary mystique of freedom and all that, which I can attest to that is all BS, you know. Um, I will tell you that that was the most satisfying work that I did for a couple of reasons. First of all, you got to realize I was seven, eight years old when Castro took over. I saw what communism did to my family and what it did to our country. 
uh, my first country. And, but I couldn't do anything about that at the time. You know, I was a kid. And here I am now, 30 years old. I am a CIA officer living in the camps with the Contras, and we're kicking Sandinista ass. Um, I, I never once woke up in the morning and went, man, can't wait till no. I was always I was switched on while I was there for those three years, and the most refreshing part was the the people that I met. The ninety nine percent of the individuals that were fighting this war were apolitical, and they were strictly had personal reasons for doing what they were doing, and they were you know in harm's way, rough living conditions. Uh, you know, especially when we first started, they had no medical, they had no real weapons, they had no training. That's first 14 months of the program. I was the only agency officer aligned in the camps. And that's all I did with them, train them, arm them, get them medical attention and infrastructure and logistics. So, but each one of these individuals that I would talk to at night would tell me, yeah, well, I'm here because I would ask, why are you here? They burned my church and beat up my priest. They raped my daughter. They force conscripted my 15 year old son. It was all visceral, it was all personal. Um, so that, that was a purity that in my business, you don't sell them fine, you know? Yeah, I can, I can understand that. I've, I've, had the, uh, I've had the good fortune to be able to sort of touch the, the FID mission for internal defense training, uh, local forces to, to fight for themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, obviously in the last year, kind of watching what happened in Afghanistan there's always always mixed feelings I, I would have to imagine you went through a similar experience kind of you know in retrospect in terms of uh what you did in in, in Honduras um so I guess here's my question about that then talking about you know how visceral it is because it is it's it, it's it's personal for those you know for for those individual fighters at the ground level um as best as you can manage from your perspective why is that not the narrative that we got, you know, handed via mainstream media? Why, why wouldn't we tell the story of, you know, we're propping up freedom fighters, which is, I, I'm saying this ironically watching the news in Ukraine this morning. Oh, well, like the world is coming together when we're propping up freedom fighters against, you know, oppressive regimes. Like here we are how many decades later doing, doing the same thing. But uh, why do you think that story got lost in, in the case of the Contras? I, again, I go back to politics. Uh, unfortunately, the media is, is swayed by their political bent, you know, and, and uh, the greater media anyway. Um, there's very few in the middle kind, kind of uh, reporting here. But, you know, the, the thing that I would highlight is this covert action program was the first successful program that the agency had had, covert action program, that the agency had had in a couple of decades. And I say successful because we did force the Sandinistas to the negotiating table because they were losing the war. And they held, they, they had to agree to hold real elections, supervised elections, and they were voted out of power. So um, that is, it doesn't get any more successful than that. However, unfortunately, the political football got even bigger when the the Iran Contra program, as they uh, the debacle became, um, and that that's those are political decisions that are outside of my pay grade. You know, why were we trading weapons to you know to 
um, befriend one and, and, and help the other. I don't know, but um, I think they got tainted with, with all the negative stuff. And I'm not saying that everybody is a Boy Scout. Look, we, we've had people from Vietnam bringing back dope and, and bringing back automatic weapons. So we've done it from Iraq. You know, I know guys in Iraq, they got in trouble for bringing back souvenirs and automatic souvenirs. So every crowd has somebody that that is is uh, above the law in, in their own eyes. But uh, like I said, the greater majority of these people were honest and they believe in that we're doing it for the right reasons. So that is a, a hell of a start to a 24 year career. Uh, I guess my. My question is, what, what do you, what do you do once you've done that? But so, what did you do after that? You know, I, I was, I've been blessed uh, in my whole career. I, uh, I went into the agency to kick ass and take names. Uh, I had, um, I wasn't career driven. Uh, I never put in for a job that would get me promoted. Still, I started out as a GS seven, and I retired as an SIS two. So I'm not too shabby for, you know, for, for in 24 and a half years. And, but my, my goal was to follow my heart. I always wanted to go do the things that the average person doesn't, doesn't want to do. So uh, I went through the farm, you know, I got my, uh, my master's in espionage, as they say over there, the very secret location of the farm, very secret. And um, I, I was supposed to go to El Salvador um to help over there and my household goods were actually in salvador when the chief of the division called me in he said uh you uh that you've been asked by name to go to costa rica and run the southern front of the contra program and you'll see that there's a theme of that along my career where uh, here i am all prepping to go this way and somebody says we need you here and go like moving so uh in, in that direction so I ended up in Costa Rica, and now you're, you, you talk a very stark contrast between what I did in Nicaragua, because with the Hondurans, we had full support, full protection while we were in country. Yeah, the border was different. I got in firefights and all that crap there, but that's outside of their domain. Costa Rica was completely the opposite. I was working out of the embassy, coat and tie, doing my stuff in the dark with the locals, with the, with the Contras, and the Costa Ricans were actually trying to capture them because they did not want the Sandinistas to be angry at them for harboring Contras and CIA folks. So they were literally, this became a, a, a mild version of the French resistance kind of thing where in the cities we had to do really covert um, surveillance detection routes and blocking cars. And I even bought a band with air conditioning. That's where we would have our meetings because can't expect these guys who don't know how to protect themselves from tradecraft um, uh, to get compromised, but we still needed to meet with them. So that, th those were very uh, exciting two years also, but in a very different way, in a much more sophisticated way, more real tradecraft base versus the kinetic aspects of, of, of the Honduran. Uh, unfortunately, that's about the time where Hasselfuss went down and then the, the Iran-Contra stuff uh, blew up um, uh, towards the end of my second year there. From there, I went uh, again, one of my bosses called me up and he said, there's this assignment in, uh, in a Latin American country, which they did not allow me to uh, say where it is. But most people that have read go, oh, is that? And I go, maybe um, they, they get it right. Um, but the thing there was 
it was going to be my first counterterrorism uh, job. And I had an affinity for terrorism just because, again, they're, they're the new bad guys in town. And also because my first mentor, Dewey Claridge, um, whom, whom I, I met during the Contra days, he, he was a guy that actually uh, came up with the concept and the creation and was the first chief of, of, of CTC, of Carter Terrace Center. And uh, so my uh, ground branch chief says to me, he says, look, there's this assignment in this particular country. You have the master language, you have the skills. We need our paramilitary officers to be stepping up more and more and, and joining the conventional you know, CIA ranks. Saluted, went down there. I had a blast. Uh, I recruited a, um, a local terrorist, a, a Maoist terrorist organization there uh, through coercion, but nonetheless, it worked. He, he uh, reported extremely good stuff for about a year. Um, and I worked very closely with our DEA guys while we were there because most of these uh, countries uh, that have a terrorism problem, it's a narco-terrorism problem. So... Um, Later on in, in, in the two years that I was there, you know, I was out with them in, in helicopters going out to the mountains where, you know, the rebels were and all this kind of stuff. So um, I, I all of a sudden I get uh, the same kind of call from the same ground branch guy says, hey, we I know that you love Asia because I, I was, was fascinated with Asia. He says we have a, a slot in the Philippines as a deputy branch chief working against the MPA and the uh, Musayev group. <laughs> Go like, put me in. Pew. But here, here's the funny thing, how conventional, even inside the agency, which is supposed to be, and, and it is, a good intelligence service. When I put in and got the Philippine job, the headquarters psychiatrist called me in for an evaluation because I had gone from back to back to back to back to dangerous tours. And their question was, you know, why do you keep doing this? And I said, well, I thought that's what I was hired to do. I know that that's what I was wired to do. And, and I'm just following both my, you know, my heart and, and my boss's direction. So got to go to the Philippines. Um, that was a great, great, great experience for me. Uh, first of all, being in Asia, which I always wanted to do. But the Filipinos, like the Thais, which I love them both and I've worked with both, um, what I love is the, they are the most hospitable people on earth until you piss them off. And then they have a switch that I truly admire that when they go full auto, uh, they're, they're fighters. They are really, really fighters. So to be supporting these individuals on their home turf, again, fighting communism, I fought communism in five incarnations. And uh, if, as you probably read in the book, there, there was an incident there where we almost got waxed by a sparrow hit team from the MPA and goes back to, to the training that awareness beats faster every single time. You know, um, I saw the danger. My, my, my buddy that was with me saw the danger. The other four individuals, including two locals, never saw it coming. And, you know, when you draw first, you draw best, so uh, awareness. So the Philippines was was uh, just a huge, uh, exciting place culturally and everything else. Uh, I came back to headquarters uh, to the uh, counterterrorism center. I was a branch chief there, and um, I got invited uh, to open up the Bin Laden task force, 
Again, a boss calls me. I, I'm happy with my branch. I had the Palestinian branch. I've always had an affinity for Israel's survival and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I was having a good time. And my, my chief of ops called me and said, um, your name has been raised to be the senior ops officer in a task force that's going to be a vir virtual station uh, and run like a station. Uh, Mike Shoyer, who was the, the senior analyst, was going to be the chief, and I was going to be the deputy chief of station and senior ops. And he said, um, you, you're going to have your own offices outside of the building, and you will be acting just like a station, releasing your cables, doing your shit, whatever you want to do. And I said, well, well uh, who are we going after? He goes, Miss Osama bin Laden. And I go, who? And I said, was I was just going to ask. Right, it's I mean it's a household name now. What I mean, what was that like in the beginning? What was the I don't know if you can speak to yep. like what was the perception or what what put him on your guys' radar to begin with? Mike Shoyer, um, he he got a little crazier later later on in life, but he was a, a genius. I mean, the guy was a very dedicated, you know, typical CIA senior analyst that has a passion for the job, and he did and. He's the first guy that started ringing the bell on, on bin Laden. You know, this guy is bad. We're getting this kind of intelligence. We're getting, but it was snippets because again, he had a big branch that he was in charge of. This is just one of the many topics in that branch that he had to handle. He was already an SIS level uh, officer. I was, I was not. So um, he, uh, he told me about it and I, and I went into uh, the, the Milan task force. And, and let me tell you that again, you talk about growth and now I am a deputy chief of station working with some really scary, smart analysts and tasking the world about finding out everything that we can about Bin Laden, his associations, where's the money coming from. And I will tell you by the time, I, I would say eight, nine months into the program, we had grown our files by tenfold, by tenfold. And we knew what he was doing. Um, we were fortunate to have a, uh, an exceptional individual and a very good personal friend of mine, uh, SF legend, Billy Waugh, um, who captured the, the, the jackal, the, the famous jackal. Well, he was Kofor Black's, Kofor Black was the chief of station in Khartoum during this time. And um, Billy was in charge of our surveillance counter surveillance program. So the first photographs in modus operandi and, and you know, uh, making book on Bin Laden was done by Billy Waugh. And he proposed time and time again to, to Kofor and Kofor up the ladder and, and up to us saying, hey, we can neutralize this guy now. We know he's bad. Look at the people he's hanging around with. Look where he's getting the money. Look how many training camps we know exist and we have overhead about these over camps and how they're training and so on and so on and so on. And um, they said, no, we, we're, we're, we're not ready for that. You know, so again, we, we kept going back and we said, look, we're not talking about killing the guy. Billy is convinced that with a good soft team coming in there, they can duct tape him and, and, and get his ass out to justice. Um, that also did not uh, serve their palate. And, and this became eventually a tipping point for Mike Scheuer because he took it very personally and rightfully so. Um, I had to leave about a year and a half after I started because my wife had a medical uh, emergency and I had to cut back on my 60 hour weeks a little bit. Uh, but, um, you know, you can argue that if we would have neutralized Bin Laden in 1997, 
the coal would probably not have happened. The bombing of our two embassies in, in, in Africa probably would have happened. Yeah, that was, right, that, you, that was right before Kenya and Tanzania, right? Yeah, no, no, the, the, that, those were the Kenza. Uh, yeah, uh, right, right. But uh, right, if yeah. had you guys, 97 would have been like, what, yeah. about a year before. before that? Yeah, a yeah. yeah. couple of years before the coal. And uh, arguably, uh, we, we might have been able to at least delay or derail the 9-11 uh, the phenomenon, you know, if he had not been, the, because he was part of that mastermind. So, you know, it goes back to the old argument that I read in, in, in history all the time. I, I love history. It's, uh, you know, what would have happened if we would have shot uh, Hitler in 1937? You know, so here you have the same phenomena and we don't seem to learn um, lessons. And we have this aversion, and this is a pet peeve of mine. We have this aversion about hands-on neutralizing a person that you know is really, 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 really bad with a 29 cent bullet. However, that aversion goes away when it's a drone that hits a group of people to get one high value target. Um, I'm not against that. If you, if, when you read, read it in the book, you'll see that I pulled the trigger on one of those. I whacked about 17 guys, uh, very proudly of that. But it's tools in the toolbox that we have to use and implement. So that's a little bit of my soapbox. Yeah, and and understandable. I uh, I I tend to think that the genesis of that came from Desert Storm, and uh, as a as a former army officer, for whatever that's worth in this conversation, I, I kind of have always had this very mixed feeling about Desert Storm. I mean, from a as a case study, absolutely incredible what was pulled off. Uh, but by the same token, I think in some ways it had some what I think are, are negative uh, second and third order effects in the sense that I think from that point forward, it created a very unrealistic expectation of what armed conflict is like, or can be like, or should be like, um, you know, we had this remote control warfare. Uh, I still remember watching, uh, they were probably what Maverick missiles, you know, the first ones where there was live video feed, you can watch it come in and then the screen goes to static kind of thing. Uh, and I think from that point, everybody kind of thought, oh, well, we can just fight wars, you know, by remote control. And, and I think you're right. I think it does. Um, it definitely, definitely feeds into that aversion to, to the hands on side of things. Um, you know, your, 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 your topic shows your background. You know, that is exactly what it is. You know, we, we, I, Iraq had so many negatives. Uh, other than the fact that in two weeks we took over the country and neutralized our military and we lost just a handful of people, a handful is too, too many also, but nonetheless, not what we lost subsequently by, by the decisions. And, but if you look in, in, in retrospect, first and foremost, foremost, Iraq was the only natural enemy Iran had. Iraqis had killed more Iranians than the plague. And here we go and we kill the mongoose. And then the snake ends up you know, owning half of Iran along with everything else. So um, it's, it's that we took our, our, our resources like everything else. You know this from your military and from your business side of the house that resources are limited no matter how much you have it and you have to allocate it according to a priority. So when the president decides that we're gonna attack Iraq, guess what? Afghanistan now takes 
at first a co-seat and then afterwards uh, kind of a back seat when things really went uh, belly up. So we ended up uh, doing this. And I, and I have a personal philosophy that comes from my, my background is that if you do something to me or mine and I break your arm, I don't have to take you to the hospital. I don't have to take you to work the next day. All I'm going to tell you is imagine if you would have raped my wife, what would happen to you? You don't want me back here. If we would have done that in Iraq in those two weeks, put the bath party back in bed and warning and left, history would have been very, very, very different again. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let me let me ask you. It sounds like you you kind of got your feet wet on the terrorism side relatively early in in your career. Uh, talking about you know being uh, with the Philippines and uh, and then winding up at CTC. Terrorism now. I mean, I would argue up until a few months ago, uh, and now we're when Ukraine got invaded, and now everybody's talking about large scale conflict again. But I would argue from September of two thousand one until six months ago, uh, terrorism is kind of all that anybody talks about, and it gets you know front-loaded for all the budget it gets front-loaded for all the press what was it like working terrorism and i would have to think what late 80s early 90s you know i can i I can even remember people kind of talking like it was maybe like a little overblown or oh well that's something that's not that's not our problem or that's not something that we're ever going to have to worry about yeah i i my first terrorism assignment counterterrorism assignment was to the latin american country in 1988 and the country was on fire. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's funny because I've heard this, you know, this argument made quite a bit. And first of all, at that time, communism was a regional phenomenon. Latin American, Southeast Asia, Middle East, but it was contained. It wasn't international or global. It became that, obviously, uh, even before 9-11, but, but, but uh, 9-11 was the... Uh, the, the, the uh, the pinnacle of that. And you have to realize that we never took our eyes off fighting communism. This is, this is something that a lot of is a is misconception. However, as you so well said, resources are resources. And now terrorism was the main focus. And if you think about it, there's also a, um, it's, it's a, a, a version of this. Um, if you, are fighting communism is fight like fighting a cancer. If you don't fight, it's gonna kill you, but you have time to fight it. You have Kibo, you have all these other thematical things out there. Um, terrorism is like getting shot. You better do something, did him out, or you're not gonna make it. So it, it may be a, a layman's uh, analogy, but you have communism is something that you have a clock on and terrorism is something that if I don't do something about this now, somebody is going to die. Um, so we we did, you know, become only focused on, on, on the terrorism side. But I want to clarify that we never stopped chasing the Russians, chasing the Iranians, chasing the Cubans, chasing the, the Chinese. That that is still was still done. So. <clears throat> Would you would you argue was there a point for you in terms of specifically on the counterterrorism side that uh, I mean was that 
was it like a sideline assignment? Because again, like late 80s, early 90s, everybody was still kind of very, you know, it was the tail end of the Cold War. There was kind of a flurry of activity before the wall came down. Um, was, was terrorism sort of like a, was it, I don't want to say a lesser assignment. That's not a, that's not a good way to describe it. But was it something that was kind of really sort of off to the side? Off, off a of mainstream, I think it would be the way, you know, you know the agency, you know, the, the, the international terrorism changed the ethos of the agency to a big degree because the, the Cold War, even though there were deaths in, in, in people that died uh, in, in our service, um, it was a more of a gentleman's kind of war. It was a, a war of wits. It was a chess game. Uh, it was I spy versus I spy and, you know, going in here and planning that and covert communications and all this. Um, it was a very sophisticated, our platforms were the diplomatic circuit come working out of an embassy or a, a, or a business cover that would allow you to have access to the individuals that you could recruit to provide you intelligence and what your country needs. Um, so, you know, polish, dressing, speaking, that is, is, is into this day is a big deal in the agency. Come terrorism, uh, you needed a little more grit because now, like in that Central America, I mean, that Latin American country, South American country that, that, I, that I allude to, uh, you know, you're, you're, I, I sat across the table from a real terrorist, a guy who had blown shit up. And he's got to look into your eyes and say, this guy will bite me back. They have to respect you. You have to have that authority. Even the people we were working with that were on, be, on our behalf, um, these were rough characters. These were cops and special military guys who had lost friends to these assholes. And they would throw people off the building. And we knew that, you know, we try to, you know, we never got involved in that. But nonetheless, you have to have a certain kind of grit. And, you know, um, like the best thing that happened to me was Castro, as bad as that is, because look at the life I've led. The best thing that happened to a special activities division ground branch was terrorism, because now you had guys and some women that are case officer trained, have overseas case officer assignments, but they all come from our soft community. So they have that grit. Uh, so that, that became, that became the, the, the focus shift. I never saw it as a, uh, as a lesser. I knew that it wasn't mainstream, but for me, mainstream would have been great if my main goal was getting promoted. My main goal was getting to do things that other people weren't, didn't want to do. Yeah, that, uh, I, that makes, that makes total sense. I, uh, yeah, I, I, can say some things about my military career that I felt were the, the same way, particularly in terms of when I chose to end it, because I felt like maybe I was, I was too high up the ladder to do the things I really wanted to do, but exactly. that, that's a, that's a whole nother discussion. Um, it's, it, there's two things that you mentioned that, that I, I think are kind of interesting. One is talking about the, the communism fight, at, at least in that period, being more of a gentleman's conflict. I remember, uh, I remember hearing a story through the grapevine about uh about an officer working in 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 russia i believe who you know at the end of the day he went back to his hotel room and found he had several pairs of shoes in his closet and found that all of the pairs of shoes were tied together 
which is not how he had left them when he left the hotel room. Um, and so it's always, I always, it amuses me to read stories like that or hear stories like that, that there was almost this, almost a, 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 at times an absurdly tongue in cheek element, um, you know, to that, to that so-called gentleman's war. The, the Russians were particularly prone to that. The Chinese are a lot smoother. They're longer game players than, than you, know, you know, Russians play checkers, Chinese play chess, you know. Uh, and we play politics, um, but that's a separate topic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it comes a time when you have to uh, focus on what you're doing or not. And, and we take the eye off the ball, whether it's terrorism or whether it's everything else, uh, we're, we're going to fail or we're going to we be set back. So yeah, the, the other thing you mentioned was uh, terrorism being a uh, in, a, in a backhanded way, being a, a great thing for uh, for parts of the agency, for SAD, for for Ground Branch, and uh, you know, again, referencing things that I've kind of heard and read over the years, that particularly in that, you know, what we'll call the Clinton years, that 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 particular corner of the organization was, uh, you know, a little bit of a pariah, um, and that there was maybe a, a, a certain parts of the political culture that you know, well, that's not needed. That's a you know, they're, they're knuckle draggers and they're cavemen. And that's a, that's a capability. That's it's, it's un uh, it's unsporting, you yeah. know, in the, in the world of the great game, you know, I grew up reading LaCare and Frederick Forsyth and all those guys. And, um, you know, you look at, you look at what, what ground branch does. And like I said, I, I remember hearing over the years that it was, you know, again, maybe outcast is a little bit of a strong word, but that it was, you know, there was a perception of, of this sort of caveman, um mentality and and now you know now those guys are rock stars yeah well you know you you come from the same background you know the military looks at special ops as a pain in the ass because they take your resources and they you know this and that and you know we this is the way we do big wars and you know uh so the agency had the similar um posture with as sad <clears throat> we were you know that pit bull that you need but you don't give it any love. It's out in the backyard, you know, you don't care. Mine, I take care of. Um, I'm a dog guy. But, you know, the, um, for, for, for SAD, they proved it. Um, I will tell you that after, especially after 9-11, a great percentage of the chief of stations in all dangerous areas were uh, SAD guys. Um, I will tell you that there were several guys who made it to division level chiefs that were home-based in SAD. And there was even one guy that made it up to DDO. Um, and, and he was a ground branch, former Marine guy that I've known for many, many years. So uh, yeah, it was a big shot in the arm. And in now it's funny because all our regular case officers have to have, get that experience. Um, you know, um, during the, uh, the Iraq Afghanistan 20 year uh, fiasco there, um, you didn't have a career unless you did a, lead, a list of term in, 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 in a dangerous spot like that, like Iraq or, or Kabul or, or somewhere. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it definitely uh, evened out the playing field and made it a, a stronger agency because let's place it, you know, you, you have to have the capability to play hardball. Yeah, absolutely. To to project force. And like you said, terrorism is, you know, it is it is a street level fight. It is not uh, it's not the great game. 
you know, that uh, that a lot of the cold warriors, uh, you know, g- grew up with. It's just it's a different environment. It's a different uh, it's a different type of conflict. So you mentioned earlier talking about uh, talking about drones uh, post 9-11. And, you know, we've already kind of touched on technology and how that's changed good and bad. So, you know, you're in a fantastic position to, you know, kind of having started with, you know, I can't. I can't imagine the, the, the gear and the equipment you guys are rocking, you know, in the early 80s, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But, uh, but before we get to that, uh, talking about kind of the stuff you probably, uh, you know, used in Honduras versus all of the stuff, you know, that we have available to us now in terms of tools and in terms of technology and capability. So, uh, you know, talk, I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on that, right? What, what have you seen? <coughs> in terms of um, how tradecraft has changed, how um, the way that the collection cycle has changed, how has the intelligence game, quote unquote, you know, changed from from the mid 80s to, you know, here we are post 9-11 and things almost coming full circle in terms of Ukraine. But in terms of like technology and equipment, tradecraft, you know, what what kind of evolution have you seen? Well, you know, it's a uh, it's it's a good question. You know, um, espionage and CIA business is both a science and an art. Okay, uh, the science can be the technology that you employ. Um, the science could be the the uh, proven ways of recruiting that recruiting cycle. Um, uh, it could be even uh, go down as gritty as surveillance detection routes. Um, but you have to understand in, in, in the eighties, when I was in the Contra program, I was, I was dealing with insurgents. So that, that wasn't an issue for me. The, the bigger world was out there. My main thing was the Sandinistas not trying to capture me, which they tried to do several times, you know, cause they, they knew that they had some guy out there helping these people. So we try to try to get to the source. So our trade craft was gunned up uh, kind of like an Iraq kind of posture, you know, I, I, and we'll discuss this later, what I carried, I was always loaded for bear. And, uh, but then when you, when you get through in, in the, the later years, um, for example, when, when I went through the farm, one of the things we spent a lot of time on was black photography, black and white photography that you could develop yourself in a covert room. And uh, things like dead drops in personal communications. You know, so we would take branches and hollow them out and take fake dog turds and hollow them out to be able to put a, a, uh, a message to an agent and then go mark the spot. Uh, I'm not saying that that's still not done, but technology has taken a huge, you know, jump on that. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we've all seen that the spy movies where, you know, the guy goes, because I actually did this. Go to you have an agent meeting and you go you go to the library you pick up this one book you put the 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 orders in there and you put them in and right after you the guy comes in and checks out that one book with a paper in it right uh, and and that that paper will have the the requirements for the asset this is what we need you to find out or clarify from the past and he will leave something like hey this is the answers to the last things you asked me and this is where we're going to meet next time and all this kind of exchange well. You know, now, you know, the, the, the concept of airdrop, I remember when that came into the agency 20 years ago, the fact that you could get next to somebody and if you had the right equipment, you could have an asset that you never even spoke to. 
you walk right by him in the grocery store in Homefuck, Egypt, and um, he, your stuff would download as his requirements. His reporting would download it as, as the intel, and you go marry out of your way, and it's encrypted. You don't have to be carrying, you know, soluble paper or none of this sort of stuff. So it actually has, uh, you know, curtailed. You know, you have other phenomena. You know, technology goes into the cyber aspect of things. And as you know, cyber warfare is, is a very huge thing. But here's a phenomenon. Uh, a lot of people, when social media first started, you know, Facebook and all this LinkedIn and everything else, that was taboo in the agency. You are not to, to play with those things. Okay. However, shortly thereafter, when the newer generations came in, now you don't exist as a person unless you are in social media. So they had to revamp that and then cultivate the training that did. Yeah, you could participate in these things, but it has to be in support of your cover and in, in your what you're you know what you're doing, and definitely not. Hey, I'm going to such and such a restaurant to meet so and so for sushi or something. You know, but it becomes a two-edged sword, uh, and it goes back and forth. Our our uh, monitoring capabilities uh, for with drones, so the little drone doing surveillance. You know, I remember when I was in the Philippines was the first time that I that I had a surveillance team back me up on some of the things I was doing. And uh, it was just solid tradecraft. You know, they would do their surveillance detection routes to the launching point, give me a clear, hey, the place is clear. I would go in. They would be out, outside looking for things. We had communications. Uh, we'd have six, seven, eight guys on the, on the ground and women because we have we use women a lot, especially in our surveillance exercise, surveillance operations. And now, you know, you, you could have a 20-year-old kid sitting in his room with a drone doing the, everything that this surveillance team was able to do, including taking good photographs of the meeting site and the agent, even for casing, you know, casing a place that you're going to have a meeting. Well, now, if it's outdoors, you could actually do it with a drone. Um, then again, now when we go spy on somebody else's turf, they're using that stuff also. So it's just an escalation that uh, that's part of the chess game. Yeah, for sure. A, a bit of a, a bit of a new arms race as it were. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's yeah. I, I, I can't imagine again, the social media thing. I, it's gotta be a double-edged sword for you guys. Uh, you know, on one hand, mm -hmm. all the, all the stuff that you can pull, you know, and, and we've, this is, this is a topic we've kind of covered repeatedly uh, in, in off-grid magazine, you know, to be careful of your digital footprint and the digital privacy and, you know, things like OSINT and, and what you can pull off of people just from open sources. Uh, but I have to imagine that there's there's an aspect of, of like you, you said, using it as a tool, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, building cover and, um, all, you know, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine that was probably a, a to, to be a fly on the wall in those meetings about that transition of how to like, how do we deal with this? You know, we can't, there were, I'm sure in the beginning, you, like you said, like the, the rule was like, well, just don't do it. And you, exactly. you kind of can't get away with that anymore. You know, especially yeah, if you're, I mean, like I said, you know, the last two generations um, are on social media. You know, I'm on social media because of the book before, before that I didn't have Facebook or any, or, or LinkedIn or any of that stuff. Um, but that is what all the young 40 and under um, are due on a daily basis. You know, they, they, they socialize. And if you are now supposed to be a businessman at Acme Incorporated, but you're really a spy and um, 
you know, you meet somebody and you say, yeah, my name is Joe McGillicuddy. Here's my business cards. Here's my phone. Then they go Google. You go, let him exist. This guy's nowhere on the media. He's got to be a stalker, you know. Uh, so it became a it became a reality, and they adapted like everything else. You know, you improvise and you go the, the way you need to. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned being on social media for the book. Let's talk about that a little bit. It is certainly not common uh, for for folks from from your world uh, to wind up on the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations for that. Uh, but I, I, it, it does bring two questions to mind, at least for me. Uh, first, let's let's talk about a little bit about what your motivation was. Uh, I'm sure that there's got to be a counterculture to sort of going public, you know, with anything ever under any circumstances. Uh, so, you know, what what kind of put that bug in your brain about having having a story to tell and, and telling it on what has become such a wide scale? Yeah, uh, you know, that was a very difficult decision for me. Um, I had never in my whole life envisioned the word author, much less best-selling author, anywhere in, in any book that wasn't my thing. Uh, there was one episode in 2009, I was already retired. That was working, that's where I was working with Eric Prince at Blackwater, uh, doing the same thing. My, my title was, I was vice president for special government programs. So uh, even the FBI calls that a clue, right? So um for for uh for us hold on because i lost my train of thought here hope you edited that out <laughs> um what were we talking about i'm sorry that sideline that's okay that's okay uh what what pushed your what made the what was the decision maker for you to, to, to write a book to put all this stuff out there thank you yeah so in 2009 my name was leaked maliciously uh, associated with the programs that I did at the end of my career, which are covered in concept in the book in great detail, including briefing the president, vice president of the United States and Condoleezza Rice. Uh, but what they blacked out was the sexy stuff that we were able to do. But anyway, um, this was this was outed. And literally front page of the local papers had Rick Prado, head of CIA's head squads or some vulgar title, which was a, a complete a misinterpretation of what we were doing. Uh, so that, that fig leaf kind of went away. And, and now I'm in a situation where you, if you Googled me, that was the only thing that would come out at that time was the fact that, hey, this guy's supposed to have been this, that, that, or the other. Um, so th that took a little bit of the, the fig leaf paranoia away. But, you know, I was a Blackwater. I, I brought Kofor Black, who was my boss in CTC. I brought him to Blackwater. Uh, because we, to this day, we're, he's one of my best friends and favorite boss, you know? So, and he was the one that was like Woody Woodpecker on me about writing a book. He would say, Rick, you need to write a book. Your, your life can show what the agency is about in interest in wider spectrum of people. I go, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. And, and then he introduced me to Steve Cole which is a phenomenal writer and he, Dean of Journalism at Columbia University, I think. And he's the other guy that started hitting me up on that. And, and psychologically, his, his move was really smart because I, I mentioned that my pet peeve was how my agency is portrayed in the media, especially in Hollywood, how our operations officers are so maligned that they're always portrayed as treacherous, drug dealing, womanizing, alcoholic, 
um, traitors, you name it. This is the Jason Bourne, American-made kind of propaganda that's out there. And, and Steve said, look, why don't you do something about it? Put your pen where your mouth is. You have the platform. So that, that kind of got the ball rolling. And, and, and one of the things that happens when you retire, you also have a little time for introspection. And that pet peeve became more and more when I, when I realized that a lot of the people that are being maligned are, are officers who paid the ultimate price. You know, we're a tiny agency and, and our directorate of operations is even tinier. We have 139 stars on our wall of honor. 139 people that have donated their lives and their soul for, for God and country. I would say close to a third of that is post 9-11. And I will tell you that of that, that after 9-11 crowd, I knew most of the people that got, got killed and some I sent in harm's way. So it became another debt of honor where I'm going like, I need to honor these people. I need to show what the agency is. And, and you'll see in the book, there's some black eyes or some political stuff that needs to be told because we're far from perfect. But I will tell you that one of the things that I have gotten a lot of good feedback on is how I portray with specific, you know, examples, you know, things that the average case officer does on, on, on a daily basis, the risk that they take, the ingenuity, the dedication, the morality. So uh, that all put together is, is what finally, you know, got me to, to say, yes, okay, I'll, I will do it. And um, the rest is history, as they say. So talking about, you know, blacking out some of the, the sexy stuff, I've, I have been fortunate enough, to, I'm, I'm far enough along in the book that I've, I've already come across a couple of uh, redacted lines, which by the way, I, I kind of thought that was a genius move, leaving the, the redaction in there. Uh, you know, definitely, uh, it's definitely a good, a good brain tease. But on that note, I mean, so what, so you made this decision, you felt that there was a, you know, you had a personal moral imperative uh, to, to maybe try and, and, and right some wrongs in terms of uh, media portrayal and things like that. So from, you know, from that, that good idea fairy point, what was the process that you had to go through in terms of, uh, you know, working with the agency or getting, getting the work vetted, trying to pull apart you know, what I can talk about to tell my message versus not wanting to give away anything that could, you know, affect people that are still out there working. You know, it's a very elaborate process and it's a necessary process. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's a pain, but it's a pain that is, it's worth, um, you know, uh, following through. And um, the first thing that makes it very cumbersome is, for example, you know, I had 10 publishers that wanted to interview me through my agent. Um, I could do a verbal with them, but I couldn't give them anything in writing. So once they said, okay, yeah, we're interested, which eight out of the 10 did, and um, four went into the bidding stage, but um, now I had to go to the agency and write a proposal, which was like a fleshed out air, uh, outline of what I was gonna talk about. Once they approved that, now I could go back to the eight publishers and go, these are the topics that I will be able to cover in whatever degree. And there were things that they, they blacked out even back then. Uh, back then they actually had blacked out Costa Rica. They didn't let me talk about Costa Rica, 
Later on, I found Dewey Claridge's book, which is clear by the agency, just like mine, that, that does talk about the Costa Rica angles on that stuff. So then um, the one smart thing I did, besides, uh, you know, I still had a few friends in the agency that were my colleagues and, and some, some of the folks that I had mentored, I made sure that the top cover of my proposal was, why am I doing this? And I think that bought me, as you yourself said earlier, that you were surprised about a lot of the stuff that they allowed me to leave in the book. I was surprised also in a very good way. Um, but I think that it was that the mindset was, hey, look, this isn't a me book, or this isn't a, you know, a political book, and this is not a P on the agency book. This is a book that can give us some realistic, honorable, you know, uh, features to the average American out there. So, uh, you know, again, going back to the concept that I did not want my colleagues who were no longer around to have their grandsons or sons and daughters read about dad from some Hollywood, you know, uh, production, you know, so. How, how long was that process? I mean, from the time that you, you sent in your proposal, two years? Yeah. Well, it was two years. It was two years to write the book. Uh, okay. The, the actual, you know, the, the, the proposal, we didn't even count that as timeline. When we handed, when I handed in, because that was the other thing, I, I couldn't hand in, the, the, the publisher could not see what I was writing because outside of the flesh outline now, I'm really fleshing things out. So it took a little over six months and which is actually pretty good. Uh, I know people that have uh, gone a year, a year and a half trying to get their books cleared. Some never get it. Um, I, I think again, because the people that knew me in the agency who are now very senior folks understood that, you know, Prado has got the right reasons for doing this. Uh, so that those six months were, were actually painful. But uh, and there was, a, believe me, there was a lot of back and forth. They, they would send me something, no, you cannot say this. And I would have to counter argue it and all that. And they were, but they were congenial for the most part. And the book is fully, fully fleshed out and fully blessed by the agency. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I can, as going from things I did in previous lifetimes to now being a, a writer and an editor, I, man, I can only imagine some of the, some of the heartache. Uh, going back and forth, trying to find that, trying to find that middle ground, you know, want to tell your story and tell it the way that you want it to be told and serve your, you know, your, your goals. Uh, but, but also, like I said, you know, I, you know, that there's, there's still people on the pointy end and you certainly don't want to put those guys at risk or anything like that. So, well, you know, and, and I think that another thing that, that, that helped me was that I was very careful um, not to pick fights that I couldn't win. There's certain things, first of all, that I don't want ever written about because I don't want that to ever come out. And I'm very, nothing that I'd be ashamed of, but something I'm very proud of. But because of it, those things I would never write about. Then there's those things that I can understand because they could compromise sources and methods. And I'll be honest, there was also some silly things that they took out that you go, really? Why would they take out that particular word or that particular sentence? But nonetheless, uh, yeah, it's, it's a painful process, but I, I'm a firm believer in it. Um, I think we need to be, um, the agency should have a much stronger posture in enforcing that and weeding out the charlatans. There's a lot of people out there 
that are writing books and are being talking heads who did four or five years in the outfit, you know, uh, in, in, you know, Hey, four years in SF is a great thing, but you're not a, an NSF commander. You know, you're not a group uh, you know, commander. You're not a, you know, uh, so uh, there, there's, there's that growth in, 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 in experience and our officers at the beginning, I mean, we have two years of training and then language. So if you do five years in the outfit, that means you had one overseas tour and you probably recruited a safe housekeeper. And now you are the talking head in pick three letters anywhere. And, and uh, they're, they're, they're picking books. And I think we owe it to the individuals again, who have paid a higher price to put these people in perspective, by the way, you know, yes, Susie was a, a case officer. She did five years. Um, just so you know, five years for us is three years of training and two years operational. So, you know, you don't have to, to lambast somebody, but, you know, document the credibility, because if not, you're giving authority to a book that wasn't even clear with you to begin with, for the most part, because that's what they do, because they don't care about losing their clearances. See, they do four or five years, they get out, they don't care about clearances, you know, so what are you going to do? You know, send me to Vietnam? No, it's not going to happen. So, yeah. But that, that, that I think that we need to pull, uh, take a posture. The other thing that I'm very adamant about is the agency has to do a much better job of allowing and facilitating the good news to come out. You know, the FBI, who, with whom I've worked for years and, and have a very great relationship with, you know, they, they have Ruby Ridge today. Tomorrow they shoot Dillinger. So, you know, you could, we could recruit Putin's secretary tomorrow and have access to all his files and we can't tell anybody. But the things that we can, and the example that I use often is the, the, the movie and the book, but mostly the movie, uh, 12 Strong. Excellent movie, fantastic for SF, fantastic for Task Force 160th. Some of my favorite people. You know, I've told you my, my, both my boys are military and they swim those waters. Um, but the agency was relegated to one tragically white guy on a donkey with bags full of money. That was the only agency presence there. And my understanding is the agency did not cooperate with the movie people. And I know this from, for, from, from firsthand individuals that were involved in it. And so here you have an opportunity to document and flaunt something that is, there's two books written about it. First in by Gary Schroen was written, you know, right after 9-11 kind of stuff when he came out. So, and it's all approved by the agency. So why would you not support that? And I went to see that theater. I went to that theater to see the movie and I went with two feds, friends of mine. And when we walked out, I couldn't talk. I was so angry. I was so, and they, they know me. They knew that I was about this close to blowing up. And literally when they dropped me off home, I had the, the only thing I said to them says, Hey guys, I apologize, but I'm in a dark place right now. And they said, we got it boss. No, no, not a problem. You know, and, um, it really hurt me in, in, uh, to see that we had such a great opportunity to highlight for everything depicted in that movie that SF did. There was an agency officer lockstep with every single one of them. Every single one of them. We had one guy with every one or two SF guys and they got in the same firefights. They could, they got, we, you know, we lost Mike Spann. We had other people wounded. You know, we paid a price and all that went for naught. 
it's a missed opportunity. We got to do better than that for our folks. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. You, you, I, I, if you didn't bring up Gary Schroen's book, I was going to because I read that. Oh man, I was a, I was a brand new butter bar, second lieutenant uh, at basic officer leaders course in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I, to this day, remember very vividly reading Gary's book uh, in my barracks on my nights and weekends. And that is, um, if, for anybody out there listening, if, if you're interested in, in that story and that sort of immediate post 9-11 uh, story, man, Gary's book is absolutely fantastic. And really, uh, again, another book where I'm, I'm almost a little surprised about some of the stuff that, that made it in, but it, it tells it, it really is a phenomenal story. And, and 12 Strong for what it was, was a fantastic movie. And, and they, you know, there were some things they did great justice to the, to the story, but uh, in terms of the agency's involvement specifically, uh, uh, Gary's book is absolutely phenomenal, you know, and, and I don't know why we don't talk more about, about Mike, uh, about Mike Spann. I don't know why that's a story. You're talking about a group of men, uh, you know, when those green berets came into Afghanistan, it was my guys vectoring them in. It was our team members vectoring them in. And I, I think it's sacrilegious not to, to, not to have to include them. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, you know, one of the things I remember about Gary's book, and this is, I'm going to segue into my next question for you, but uh, one of the things I remember about Gary's book specifically is that they, he, he went into a, what I thought was a great amount of detail in terms of how those guys prepped for for going in and you know i remember him talking about you know especially now doing what i do for recoil you know i'm so spoiled rotten uh you know getting to getting to play with all the latest and greatest and the new toys and the gucci gear and all that stuff uh but i remember a a passage gary talking about how they got all their their clothing and their quote-unquote gear you know going to like an ll bean catalog uh you know and going in with you know under folder, you know, AKMS, uh, run of the mill bone stock rifles, uh, you know, and again, just in a way, almost, uh, almost amusing in, in that, you know, there's this perception, uh, again, talking about Hollywood, right? There's, there's, there's this perception of, of what you guys do that, you know, it's always the latest and greatest. And, you know, James Bond had his cue and there's all these, you know, gadgets and gizmos and super secret tools. Um, and to hear these guys going in with, you know, fleece line jeans from L.L. Bean and, and you know, ratty ass AKs uh, really sort of changes the perspective. And I, I think shines a great light on something you said earlier about how gritty the counterterrorism fight is compared to, you know, other types of operations you guys are involved in. Yeah. Well, you know, part of, again, you know, the name Black Ops comes from the covert world that we live in. You know, we do our agent meetings at night. And black ops also means that the U.S. hand has to has to be hide, hidden. So in Afghanistan, if we would have showed up in in, in the best and greatest of you know uh, SEAL Team Six gear, um, you know that 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 would have been you know a very high profile. Uh, the weapons that we carried, you know, with our guys, as as you as you mentioned earlier, the amount of training that they received was very esoteric. Packing mules. It's the first time I, that I know of that anybody had gone to a pack, mule packing, you know, course, because they were, they were going to Afghanistan and they knew that this was the main mode of transportation. So, uh, yeah, it's very rustic because the environment is rustic and anything high tech is going to show, you know, highlight you. And, and that's not what you're there to do. 
you're there to do a covert mission. Yeah, and and rustic is a rustic's a great term for it, and I, I have to imagine that it probably was pretty similar for you um, on the Contra program. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know what what was some of the you know let's talk about weapons and gear and and uh, you know we'll geek out on the on the sort of the recoil you know yes, side I of love, things. Love. So what I mean, what were some of the weird esoteric oddball <laughs> stuff that you wound up using? Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, and, and by the way, I love Recoil Magazine. It's one of my favorites. I mean, just uh, look forward every month to looking at the different, the different toys. But, you know, I, I was one of those guys that was handed a lump of money and go buy gear. So you go and buy the best civilian boots that you can get and the best pants. And, but you also have to be able to fit in. Can I look like ninja stuff? So there, there was a balance there. Uh, Weapons-wise, um, in, in, in the Contra program uh, specifically, uh, Browning High Power was our sidearm at the time, uh, and, and which is a fantastic gun. Uh, so I carried my Browning High Power everywhere, but I also carried a Walter PPK on my ankle all my career. And I never told people, you know, I mean, I, I was doing it legally. It wasn't like, you know, but I never would let anybody know because that was my lifeline. Um, in the, uh, in the Contra place, I had a, an AR-15, um, and I had those, we call them golf ball grenades, you know, the, uh, B-40s or whatever. And, uh, I always said when I was out in the field, I always had two of those in my pocket. Um, body armor wasn't an, uh, an option back then. So, um, you, you, you're going, uh, very thin skinned, um, communications were rustic. I mean, you know, I had, you know, uh, UHF and VHF antennas that I would string up and believe it or not, this is a historical, this is straight out of World War II. Our communications with the Contras in the field was done through OTPs, one-time pads. So we literally would get on the radio, pick up a frequency and go 37, 42, blah, 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 blah. And that was how we were communicating. You talk about awkward. And now, of course, you know, you can actually have classified video teleconferences with commanders in the field you know yeah i remember even uh you know when i was in the army i remember you know all our vehicles had a blue force tracker you know is what they call gps suites and all that and man i you know i remember being out uh i was responsible for an area that was uh, about 50 kilometers away from uh i think victory in baghdad is where we were based out of you know and talking about the real-time aspect of it now like i remember getting text messages on my little blue force tracker screen from my company commander, you know, who is 30 miles away, uh, you know, Hey, tell me what's going on. Just sitting on a phone, you know, or a Blackberry or a laptop typing me text messages. So yeah, man, one-time pads. I haven't heard that in a, in a yeah, that's, that's a historical, most people haven't even heard of it, yeah. but you know, it, at the same time, I mean, we, we provided the conscious with fouls because we, we didn't want to give them M16s because again, that was too obvious an American effort. So Fowl's a fantastic gun, good caliber. They, they, they liked the fact that it had more oomph than the AK and, and this kind of stuff. But there was also some pretty cool technology. I, uh, I know you read that part, is I put together a plan to blow up Puerto Cabezas Pier uh, in Nicaragua, which is where it was the belly button for all the logistics, military logistics material that was coming in from Cuba or from Russia via Cuba, because uh, that's the conduit. So. Uh, I literally, when, when I was uh, with a mosquito, I, I met a couple of the mosquito warriors and one of them saw I had my, my scuba badge on my hat. 
And he said, are, are you a diver? And I go, yeah, I'm a military diver. And uh, he said, uh, I'm a diver too. I said, really? He says, yeah, we're, we're lobster divers. He, he brought out the six guys that were lobster divers. That was their profession. Now they were contras. So that, that stuck in my mind. And when the agency came in with a requirement that, look, you know, we're doing great on raids and ambushes, but we need a left hook here. We need something that is going to get the world's attention that this is a serious fight. So I proposed to train those mosquito divers into military divers and, and headquarters bought off on it. And I said, okay, here's, here's the requirement. And there's a really good photo in the book, uh, which is me with, my, with the four mosquito guys that made, made it through the training and the, the actual device that we used, it was 80 pounds of C4. And it was, it was shaped in a way that you could actually swim it. I was the guy testing it for swimming buoyancy because you didn't want it to float up or you didn't want to be dragging this thing. So it was a pretty sophisticated setup uh, with timing devices and all that other stuff. So the technology was there. And, and the other technology was when, when I came back from that op and two days later, we get the overhead satellite overhead. I had never seen satellite overhead in my life. And all of a sudden here's this pier that's got a big ass hole in it now. And, and you sit there and you go, we did that. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is, that's, uh, that's, that's super cool. So that, uh, that PPK that, that I, that stuck with you your whole career. Yeah. I, I actually bought one recently because that, that one, you know, uh, the, the rescue that I did that I jumped into the water, I, that was on my ankle. So you can imagine that that gun was pretty worn up. And uh, not too long ago, I, I went out and found a, a mint one um, that, that just you have to I have a high Browning, Browning high power. I got to have the PPK because I was such a part. But, you know, that that um, the, the whole concept for me in the agency, because, you know, we. Now the military is going to this low visibility operations, okay? Uh, which I think is fantastic. But that's what we've been doing all our careers, especially our paramilitary guys. So, you know, the, the low vis has different requirements and the number one requirement is you have to fit in into the environment. So I, what I teach and what I preach and what I did was there's no gun for all season or holsters for all reasons. And I'll give you an example. When we were in the Philippines during the, uh, the, the first Gulf uh, incident there, um, we were really hitting some of the, the, because there were Iranians there, there were you know, Iraqis there, there was all kinds of stuff there. And um, we had a lot of walk-ins, people that actually volunteer or say they're volunteering to have information. Well, that could be a trap. You know, they're, they're, they are looking for us. I mean, and, and uh, there was enough terrorism in the Philippines to begin with. So I figured out the, the big, the top three or four hotels had security. They actually had metal detectors. And uh, no, actually they, they would wound you. That's what it was. They would check your bag or whatever and they would wand you, but they would never wand you below your knees. So I would have my embassy radio under my jacket and that would beep and they would see that it was a radio. They'd beep around it. I, I would carry two five-shot 38s, Ladysmiths on my ankle. That way, hey, the guy who's coming to meet me has to go through the same scrutiny. So chances are he's not going to bring a gun. But if he gets away with, with it or has a knife, at least I had 10 rounds and two five-shot revolvers. Uh, uh, my hip wasn't right for a while there, but, you know, it's, uh, it was part of the carry. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, actually, so on that note, right, we're talking a little bit about, about the gear itself. So 
you, you beat me to the punch a little bit here, but so in terms of specifically to carry and, and techniques, um, you know, what kind of lessons would you say that you learned in terms of concealed carry? And, and again, like you said, the military has now really picked up on uh, the low visibility aspect of, of a lot of what they're doing. I know there's kind of a lot of mission overlap in terms of ISR and collection and things. And that's pushed particularly the soft community to, to really put a, a lot of effort into low biz stuff. Um, so my two part question, I guess one is, was there, is, was there a formalized training program for low vis carry and self-defense and weapons use? And, uh, uh, in addition to whatever training there may or may not have been at that time, what were kind of some, some hard learned, like some field lessons that you picked up along the way about how to carry and, and, you know, weapons use and deployment and things like that out of that super low vis, uh, kind of environment. Well, like everything else, you know, uh, experience is your best teacher, you know, and, and obviously, you know, when we would go through training, you always carried strong side. Um, you know, you if you carried a knife, you carried it strong side because that's where, you know, you that's this is your main hand, which is baloney. Um, but for example, uh, the majority and you know this, the majority of the meetings that we have clandestine meetings are called car pickups. So I'm sitting in a car with somebody that could be setting me up or might've been turned or whatever. And my weapon is here next to his side. And if he decides to do something against me, I'm at a handicap. So I religiously would carry cross draw or shoulder holster that I could reach with either hand. Uh, my knife, even now I have, I have it in my pocket. My knife is on the left-hand side because I carry, I carry appendix or I carry strong side. So if I'm going to get in a fight at 71 years old, I'm going for the gun, right? But if I can't because I'm trapped or whatever, then my access is going to be the knife and I carry that on my left. Uh, ankle holsters have a place. Um, I love the appendix. Um, you know, again, uh, in a low-vis environment, if there's an incident and you start doing this, um, boom, you know, that, that's going to cause attention. But Conceal carry on, on appendix, you can actually draw the weapon under the table and have it at the ready and nobody can see it. So it, they, they all have their advantages. Yes. If you told me, hey, Rick, come over to, I'm having an issue. I'm going to have my body armor on. I'm going to have my M4. I'm going to have my, my Glock 17 on the side. And unfortunately, I don't have any of those little grenades. But that's not always. I, I live in, in, in Florida in a very hot climate. so. For me, I, um, my, what I call my three-piece suit, the shorts, T-shirts, and flip-flops, uh, I carry a SIG um, 365 SAS. That's the one that doesn't have the sights. It actually has like a dot on, on the top. It, and I love it because 10 rounds, and I can put that, I, I use a Thunderwear, uh, which is another thing that most people don't even know what it is, um, because again, uh, I have the discipline not to blow my personal parts off, but people don't pat you there. So, you know, people may pat you everywhere, but the crotch is something that you can actually hide and you can have a shirt inside, as a matter of fact. So no holster for all, all seasons or reasons. The same thing with guns. Um, I, uh, I'm a Glock guy because the agency was hot, browning high power till the 90s. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first real formal um, counterterrorism environment course, uh, which was called uh, Case Officer Operations in Dangerous Areas. Um, 
I did it with my Browning and I did it with my 45 because as an SAD guy, I could carry alternative weapons, but it was just, a, you know, pretty much the same concept. Uh, I remember one of the instructors, um, I asked him, I said, can I carry, can I do the training with cross draw? He says, well, that's not safe. I said, well, that's how I carry. Well, him and I, after he saw me shoot and he saw me fight and he saw me do all these things, we became friends and, and, he, and he and I told him, I said, look, you know, I'm sorry. This is the reason why. If I'm sitting in a car meeting, same thing with a seatbelt. Seatbelts tie into your strong side. How do you get, yes, the, the, the 4,000 pound bullet that you're driving is your, your, your main course. But in the Philippines, when you get caught in one of those traffic jams, you ain't moving anything. So you're going to have to go out and, or you're going to have to deploy your weapon. So I, the, the cross draw aspect. So in this particular course was really, really good. It was three weeks, very intense. Um, everything was, sim, you know, uh, role playing, real bad guys, things go bad. Uh, a lot of, you know, the, the good kinetic driving, pitting maneuvers, all that, the reverse 180s, um, hand to gland training. You know, we did a lot of the, what is now craft maga, for lack of a better word, just the, you know, the dirtiest thing you can come up with. So that, that became uh, a very popular course and a very successful course because I, I went through mine, I think it was in real early 1990. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think it was February or March of 1990. And I was, uh, the amount of what I learned and I was already a gun guy and I was already been in, in harm's way more than a dozen times. Um, it was a fantastic course and that has continued and it has matured. Um, same thing with, uh, with high threat meetings. Um, you know, uh, for us overseas to meeting a volunteer is, is a pretty hairy job. And we developed a course called high threat, you know, uh, meetings. And it was the whole protocol. I'm, I can't go into it, but you know some of it because, you know, it, it is tradecraft based, but it's also, you know, disguises and it's called certain protection and hiding of weapons and everything else that you, you try to do. So um, for, for us, we went to the Glock in, in uh, early 1990. Um, I was actually in that Latin American country that, that I couldn't speak about when the, um, the SAC for DEA came out and says, hey, you're doing, you're, you shoot pretty well. He said, why don't you try my gun? And I go, oh, that plastic piece of crap. And he goes, Rick, try it. One magazine. I went back and went, can you get me one? You know, uh, I fell in love with the Glock back then. It was just an incredible weapon. And then subsequently, we, we ended up getting it ourselves. Uh, I own every nine millimeter Glock has ever made. Because again, uh, I have a 43, not a 43X, I got a 43. That's my daily carry gun. I got a special magazine that has extra rounds. I got a, a spare mag, knife on the left side. Uh, so if I'm like last night, I was at an event. That's what I had under my shirt. Uh, the SIG is my more casual if I'm walking the dog or if I'm you know going to the grocery store or something. Um, I carry a 48, Glock 48 is my, my favorite for strong side carry. Although I, I've carried it uh, appendix because if you could carry a 43X, you could carry a, 40, a 48. It's just, you're talking what, three quarters of an inch longer barrel. Yeah, some, something like that. Yeah, I, I carried, uh, I carried a, a Glock 19 forever and ever and ever. And uh, I, I recently switched to the 48, which I, I carry appendix and I, 
man, it's it's all the benefits of a Glock 19 and a thinner frame, and for the appendix, mm -hmm. it makes it just that much easier. Well, and if you get if you get that Shield Arms magazine that carries 15 rounds and fits the uh, replaces the 10 round magazine, that's a 50 percent upload on your on your ammo, uh, not counting your your backup uh, magazine. So, uh, so you know, again, for for us, I think the agency has gone pretty much in that direction too. And and I I was I taught uh, our soft guys for about two years um in a program called camp x and that was mainly what it was is teaching them how to do low vis operations and so every all the gunfighting is from you have to have concealed and one of the things that people don't understand for example if you're carrying here in the states and you're printing a little bit and a cop sees you he might go up to you and say do you have a permit and you show me your permit and you kiss and go away you know and, and, and everything is fine but when you're doing low-vis operations, you cannot afford to print. You cannot afford to be challenged because you're doing something you're not supposed to be. You're just carrying a weapon in case something bad happens. But you're either bugging a terrorist safe house, which, you know, I've done, or, you know, or, or you're meeting an agent somewhere and you're, you're walking some dark street to go to a safe house. Uh, you cannot afford to print or to be showing, you know, like the, the guys wearing vests in July in Latin America because they had to hide their gun. Really? Uh, that That's ridiculous. That That's that's a giveaway. So Yeah, uh, the old uh, <laughs> the old khaki, they were like either photographer's vests or fishing vests. Exactly. Vest. I yeah. had one. Yeah. <laughs> I had one. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's silly. It, it's mind games. And what I love about the low-vis operations and as I become experienced in it, and I consider it probably my strongest, my strongest craft, because I did it for so, in so many different scenarios in so many different areas, is, is the fact that you have to be able to blend in. You have to be able to, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts with movies, um, there was a series that I really liked that was called um, Strike Back. And it was, tactically, they were, they were hot shit. I mean, these guys were spot on, their movements, their fighting was awesome. But when they went to do surveillance, they didn't even put a hat on. You know, they still had the 5'11 pants, the tight T-shirt, the, the gun stuck in the back, and maybe the Oakleys, you know, and, and, and you're doing this in Thailand or the Philippines or something, you know. And that really irked me because I'm going like, come on, guys, you know, show, show how easy and credible it is to have a little backpack and you go around the corner. And now you come out, we have a different shirt and you have a hat or you have a wig under the hat. Um, I, I was big into disguises. You know, in, in when I was in uh, another place they did not allow me to talk about was, was Shangri-La, a radical Muslim country uh, in Africa, very radical. I mean, that place was, we were gunned up to the max, but it's also 99% black. So we don't have enough black officers. We had some with us, but you know, we, we all got to carry our weight. So this is where our, our, our disguise branch gave us these masks that are, that are fitted. And I will tell you, uh, I got video of them, um, that you cannot tell that it's a mask. If, you, if I'm sitting in a car driving, you see me going, is this, yeah, that's a black African there. So uh, disguises are a big deal in our craft. Uh, it's that smoke and mirrors that, that, we, that you can project to be able to go do the deed that you need to do. Um, and, and, and that to me is just exciting as hell. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> I, I man, I first of all, I loved Strike Back when that show was on. I absolutely loved it. And yeah, there was a lot of that's what pulled me into it was, you know, you they do a, an action sequence, there'd be a gunfire, and you'd be like, man, that's 
that's better than what I normally see at a yeah. TV and movies, you know, exactly. so that's really good. Yeah. But the, uh, the disguises thing is interesting. Again, you know, uh, Hollywood gets a lot of stuff wrong, but sometimes it's funny to see the things they get right. And of course, you know, Tom Cruise made it famous, the whole pulling off the mask thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's always, like I said, it's sometimes it's, it's, it's amusing to see like, oh, well, you know, they got all this other stuff wrong, but this one thing here, that's kind of just a, visual gimmick for a movie is actually probably the closest thing to reality well look, look at like, look at the james, the early james bond movies you know uh thunderball the beginning of thunderball he gets in a firefight he jumps on one of these jet proposed thing that takes him to his armored vehicle and now you know i've actually seen videos lately of guys doing ship assaults off exactly you know the, yep. the modern version of that uh i think it was goldfinger that he had the uh lack of a better word, a GPS tracker in, in, in his console that he put a, an item in. You know how many times I've done that to somebody that I'm trying to surveil? <laughs> put, put it on there, then just track them with their equipment. They had this back in 62, 63, 64. So uh, yeah, Hollywood does get it right once in a while, but it's the misinterpretations that I take exception to. The moral yeah. ones. Really. Yeah, I, I, which is uh, you know entirely understandable. It, it is... Uh... You know, it's it's a misunderstood world. And I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I can sympathize with you on that, having spent, a, you know, spent a, some time as a, as a contractor. Right. Uh, contractors are another one. Right. Uh, every time I turn on a movie and there's any kind of private military outfit, they're always the bad guys. They're always corrupt. They're always, you know, uh, it's all a bunch they're often of called black thorn or black, yo, or black tree or something. Yep, yeah. yeah. Black forest. <laughs> oh yeah. It's always black something. And they're always this band of like miscreant, you know, uh, maladjusted, uh, you know, couldn't fit into normal society. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I, I understand the the taking exception, um, you know, to that. Uh, cause everybody that I worked with were, you know, they were stand-up guys. They were, you know, they were there for a reason. And, I, you know, I even got flack from, from my own family switching from active duty to contract and, and not being able to, to, you know, necessarily talk about everything that I was involved in. There's a lot of misunderstanding about why guys will make that transition sometimes, you know. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real thing. So, uh, but talking about, talking about tactics and stuff, and, and you mentioned something early, early on in our conversation about, uh, you know, spotting first is, you know, sometimes better than even drawing first. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. If you had one hour to teach someone about situational awareness, about how to spot a potential threat, about how to train your eye and your mind to see the bad thing coming before it's on top of you, what would be the first two things that you would teach them? The first thing that I always teach, and I've done this with all every soft guy that I've worked with in the last two or three years, is Cooper's Colors. Cooper's Colors are a mindset uh, that, that Colonel Cooper, uh, former Marine uh, genius, one of the first serious gunfighting kind of guys that came out. And the Cooper Colors are white means you're absolutely paying no attention to anything. And Cooper used to say, because uh, I went through his course, uh, they would say, their instructors would say, you should only be in white when you're making love to your wife. That's the only time you should be in white. The rest of the time you're in yellow. And yellow doesn't mean that you have your hand on your gun. And, uh, but it means that you are aware of what's going on around you. Your, your face is not 
texting. Uh, you, you don't have your hands in your pocket and you're looking up the air. No, I mean, you are, you're, you're paying attention. During the yellow stage, all of a sudden you see two guys at the end of the, the street, they're leaning against the wall. And now you go into orange and orange is when you formulate a plan. So it, it goes like this. Well, I'm sure that it's nothing. However, comma, if those guys do come out and they pull guns, uh, I'm going to run this direction, or I see that open door over there, or I can see that, you know, that, that big uh, metal object over there that I can get some real cover behind and shoot back. Whatever it is, you come up with a decision and you hope that you don't have to implement it. And then red is when you actually activate, and it is a proven fact. Uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Jerry Smith, I think. Yeah, Jerry Smith. Who did he was an o, o, uh, OSI guy and he did research in Europe about all the terrorist acts in the 70s and 80s and the individuals that were able to get themselves just a couple of yards away from the X usually su survived the ones that didn't and were surprised they didn't act at all and so awareness is is the number first thing that I, the first thing that I teach um you know, all, all my kids are grown up. They all carry, they all read your magazine. They all are into the gear, ninja stuff, tour military. And, uh, but at, at the end of the day, you, you have to be able to deliver what you got. And it's your responsibility. Uh, we, we, my, my kids, when we would go to dinner, they knew exactly where dad was going to sit. And if they forgot, yeah. mom would go, not there. That's dad's seat. Table, so were, table in the back of the room or the booth facing the or a chair facing the door. That's right. And you know no. where the bathroom is, you know where the back door actress is and, you know, and, 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 and that awareness beats reaction every single time. The, uh, the incident that I was referring to, um, I did, I did have to draw my weapon, but I didn't have to fire it. Um, if you Google um, NPA Sparrow hit teams, you could get it on YouTube. And these guys carry a 1911 A145 caliber. The grip safety is taped down. The hammer is back. The safety isn't on. And they carry it in their crotch. And they hold it up with their left hand. So their scenario is they walk. They did this at Clark Air Force Base outside in Angeles City. Two Air Force guys got capped exactly that way. They were waiting for a taxi. Guy comes in from behind them. They pop the gun out, they go, pop, pop, and put them and go. And they, there, were, there were ghosts that were never seen. Well, there was one guy that was captured and he cut a deal and he demonstrated their, their form. And that's the first time I went, oh shit, this is really dangerous stuff. So the story here is, well, we were coming out of a, out of a restaurant. We had been working in, I think it was in Davao. And I had two army officers um, from their special group. I had two of our techs. And it was me and my buddy Davis. And we walked out of the restaurant. We were the last two. Davis and I were the last two. I was the last guy to come out. And as I look to my left, because as soon as I come out of my house or anywhere else, I'm scanning, right? And I see there's these three guys talking to each other. And as soon as we come out, one of them makes eye contact. The three of them get side by side like this, three abreast. The guys on the outside have their hand in their left pocket. And they're looking at us. I went total, you know, adrenaline dump, right? Tunnel vision, 
auditory exclusion. I don't know if Davis, I, I knew after the fact, but I didn't know if Davis had seen anything. All I saw was that. And my point is, I'm if I do this to you with a gun and you weren't expecting, you would at least do this. These guys didn't even blink. They kept walking three abreast and the guy in the middle looked at me like, I'll get you next time. And I said, no, you ain't. So as soon as that's over, you know, I reholster my weapon and I, and I look at Davis and he's reholstering his weapon and he was a smoker. He was trying to light a cigarette and he wasn't nerves. I mean, he's, he's a combat vet from Vietnam. It's just the adrenaline, that adrenaline dump. And so I asked him, I said, did you see that? He goes, explanative, yes, you know. And, but nobody else of our group saw that, including our two techs. They got crucified and, and you know, and, and, and yelled that later. But if we had not seen that, well, you and I would not be having this conversation. I guarantee you that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I said, it's, you know, again, in, uh, in, in two of our titles concealment and off-grid you know we that's this is a, a topic we spend a lot of time on and it's uh you know it's it's one thing for us to write an article and postulate now we all have our resumes and our subject matter expertise but to you know to have such a such a concrete tangible example of, of the effectiveness of that of that kind of awareness is is pretty awesome so um thank you for that and and thank you for taking the time uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Recoil Live. I'm your host, Tom Marshall. Uh, we are brought to you courtesy of FN, and I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you so much.